So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, due to travel and things today, I get to play host as well as presenter. And so welcome to the Serious Security Symposium here at Purdue University. Uh, my name is David Zage. I'm a third year grad student here at Purdue. I work with Professor Christina Nidotaro and my research interests are in uh, distributed systems, fault tolerance and security. Today I'll be presenting and mitigating attacks against measurement-based adaptation mechanisms in unstructured multicast overlay networks. And this is a joint work with Aaron Walters and Professor Christina Nirutaro here at Purdue University in the Department of Computer Science and Sirius. So I'll begin today by looking at the current internet today and looking at shortcomings in developing applications. So today, the current internet routing protocols, and in particular IP routing, do not gracefully detect or recover from disruptions. They do not provide applications with the resiliency or robustness that the applications require, even though there are often redundant physical links. Also, the routing protocols are not designed to support application-specific performance metrics and path selection. And due to this, some of the applications we want to design cannot deliver the desired performance. And finally, there is a lack of native network services for groups. Things such as UDP and TCP were not designed for multi-user groups, as well as IP multicasts have been slow to be adopted due to infrastructure requirements. So in order to overcome these difficulties, overlay networks have been proposed as a viable solution. So first of all, they offer increased performance due to the fact that they can be optimized for application-specific metrics such as bandwidth, latency, round tip time or jitter. They offer, offer increased reliability since they can have more robust dissemination structures that often have multiple links and that data can be replicated over multiple nodes in the system. They also offer increased capacity since these peer nodes often have storage or processing capabilities that the normal core routers would not. And this allows us new opportunities to offer new functionality and new applications. These applications include file sharing such as NAPS or Nutella, distributed file systems such as Ivy, and multicast systems such as ESM or NICE. So once we have an overlay system, they're usually broken down into two main architecture types. The first is structure overlay networks in which the neighbor set selection is defined by organizational constraints. So what this means is that when a node in the network wants to choose a neighbor, then these neighbors have to pass a set of pre-subscribed constraints in order to become the neighbor. And the goal here is to bound the number of total network hops. So we have things like cord and distributed hash tables, which use this idea to allow for quick and efficient lookups. The other type of architecture we have are, is unstructured overlay networks. And here, the neighbor set selection is not constrained. So the goal here is to deliver the best performance possible. So a node will choose its parents based on an application-specific metric it wants to optimize, as opposed to perhaps who's closer and who's not. So now that we've seen that overlay networks in general are a good thing to build applications over, one common application that's being built is a multicast system. While it's traditionally been seen that the IP layer is the best layer to deliver this functionality, it's been slow to be adopted and deployed due to the infrastructure requirements. So research has shown that we can push the requirements from the core routers to the end systems and then use the end systems to create multicast groups. Each of the end systems then creates a unicast link between other nodes in the system and is able to offer multicast functionality. So like I saw in this previous slide, there's two types of uh, overlay structures. There are also 
multicasts that are both structured and unstructured. And each of these has its own benefits and trade-offs, and the debate is still out whether or not which one's better and which one wins, and it's still a topic of current research. So now that we've seen that overlay networks and multicast networks are becoming more and more prevalent, they're also becoming a greater target of attack. And they're vulnerable for two main reasons. The first is that they're deployed in an open environment. This means they are um, vulnerable to attacks from malicious nodes from the outside of the network. But most of these attacks can be mitigated by either authentication or from other cryptographic primitives. The other reason overlay networks are vulnerable is the fact that we push trust from the core systems to the end systems. And it's been shown that these end systems are usually much more vulnerable to attack and in turn makes our system more vulnerable to attack, especially insider attacks or otherwise known as Byzantine attacks. And once inside this system, these Byzantine attackers can do anything, including attacking the adaptive nature of the protocols. So there has been some related work in this area. First of all, it's been shown that TCP and its adaptive mechanisms can be attacked and can be taken advantage of. There have been some solutions to different um, attacks against overlay networks, such as those against BGP, some of the selfish behavior seen in overlay networks, as well as some of the attacks against routing and structured overlay networks. So in summary, we have many distributed systems take advantage of adaptivity for good reason. These adaptive services provide better performance and better fault tolerance for new applications being deployed over the internet. At the same time, security threats are increasing because we are pushing everything onto the internet. We are also pushing trust to the end systems which are more vulnerable, which makes our overall system more vulnerable. So these two things combined uh, show us the need that we need to make adaptive mechanisms more resilient to such attacks. And in previous research has not looked at malicious attacks against unstructured performance-driven overlays. And so thus we need to um, augment adaptation mechanisms with Byzantine resilience. So in this talk, I will focus on Byzantine attacks against adaptation mechanisms in unstructured multicast overlay networks and describe a solution against the critical aspect of it, preventing incorrect adaptations decision in measurement-based overlays. So now we've seen some background on the problem, I'll uh, present the system and attacker model. So we begin with a self-organized network, and here no node has complete topology information. In order for a node to join the network, or in order to be connected to its peers, it uses a gossip-based membership protocol to exchange information about which nodes are reachable. In addition to what nodes are reachable, it often is used to exchange information such as application-specific metrics and what type of performance it's receiving. So in order to stay connected, each node maintains a parent, a peer set, and a routing table. This routing table is generally the children for which the node is responsible of sending data to. So once we have, we have a physical layer, we then have a mesh control plane which is based on this gossip-based protocol and finally, on top of this, we build a tree-based multicast system. And this tree-based multicast system adapts to maintain application-specific metrics such as round-trip time, bandwidth, or latency, trying to optimize that one metric. And we want to make sure that I point out that, once again, this is a self-organized system. There are no constraints on the neighbor selection. So even though you might be logically connected to a neighbor in the tree, this neighbor might be far away, and other neighbors might actually be closer than that current neighbor is. 
So once we have our tree, we want it to be able to adapt to network changes. In order to do this, we have to collect metrics. And the nodes in the tree collect metrics in two ways. The first is through passive observation, one of their own performance to the source and from the source. And the second is through periodic probing of peer nodes around them. So in other words, I ask my neighbors around me what the performance is and see how they are doing. Once I've collected the metrics, I then use these to compute a utility function. And using the utility function and the perceived gain, I decide whether or not I want to change to a node and have that node become to my parent. And then once, of course, that accurate interpretation of my own perception, of the perception of others, and of the result of the utility function are critical into making good adaptations. So we use uh, the N-System multicast unstructured overlay system as our example system for the fact that it is a well-used and well-deployed system. It uses several metrics, including bandwidth, latency, loss, round-trip time, saturation, and path, in order to optimize its performance. And it also has many mechanisms to help improve data and decision quality. It uses data sampling and data smoothing, to, for example, to help with the data quality. And for decision quality, it uses things like randomization, dampening, hysteresis, in order to help make a better decision. And all of these are used to help with benign faults in a cooperative environment. So it assumes that the faults are due to network errors or other things like that, and not to an actual attacker in the system. So what happens if there is actually an attacker in the system? Well, first of all, an attacker is considered to be one or more nodes in the overlay, and there could be possibly more, and it's considered to be an insider attacker, which means that it has compromised one of the nodes of the overlay. And because of this, it has all the cryptographic keys that are stored on each of the nodes it has compromised. And since this means that, that um, authentication and other cryptographic primitives are not enough to stop these type of attacks. So then a, crypto, a compromised node can lie about its um, perceived metrics, such as its bandwidth. It can tell it has perfect bandwidth, or tell other nodes it has very bad bandwidth to avoid other nodes choosing it as a parent. It can lie about its latency, and it can also lie about its degree or the number of children it has. It can also impose artificial influence toward the observation space. So in other words, it can send extra traffic in order to make links look bad or look better than they actually are. So now we've kind of seen what the basic system is and what the system model is. Kind of look at what the attacks that can uh, target the adaptive mechanisms are and the severity of these attacks on the actual system. So we have identified three main classes of attacks and we um, classify these based on their effect of the path and the control path that the attacker has in the system. These are the attraction, repulsion, and disruption attacks. And I'll go into more detail about each of these attacks in the following slides. And each of these attacks can be used to facilitate other further, um, more normal types of attacks, such as selective data forwarding, traffic analysis, overlay partitioning, et cetera, et cetera. The first type of attack we identified was the attraction attack. And here, the attacker has the goal of attracting more children or becoming higher in the tree because of the intuition of the fact that if he is higher in the tree or has more children, he'll have greater control over the data being sent over the network, as well as more control over the network in general. So in other words, if we have, again, a diagram here on the right-hand side, we have the red malicious node. He's low in the tree and has very little control over the data being sent, whereas if he lies about his observed data, if he lies about his bandwidth and says he has really good bandwidth, really good latency, or has no children, he can then climb to higher spots in the tree or have more children, as can be seen in the bottom part of the picture. This allows him to have greater control over what is going on in the overlay. And then 
based on this control, he can do other things like selective dropping of traffic, um, traffic analysis, or other forms of disruption. The next type of attack we identify is the repulsion attack. And here, the idea is the attacker wants to reduce the uh, attractiveness of itself or other nodes in the network. And we came across this attack when we were trying to get certain nodes to move away from the source and be connected to malicious nodes. And in a good environment, a node should never leave the source because it will never find a place that has better bandwidth or better latency. But as can be seen from our diagram here on the right, we can actually have a situation in which the attacker node D is able to get the good node, green node E, to move to be connected to the attacker and actually now be three hops away from the source as opposed to being directly connected to the source. In order to do this, a malicious node will actually try and affect that node's perception of the source and the performance it is receiving. In order to do this, it, one, it lies about its own metrics, and two, is it tries to actually influence the structure of the overlay by, one, it may be sending data through the overlay or having other nodes send data to that node and fill its link to make it have the perception of low link utility. And the reason an attacker would want to do this type of attack is the fact that it can either freeload in the system or can actually be used to help augment other types of attacks. The final type of attack we identified was the disruption attack. And here the attacker has the explicit goal of wanting to use the adaptive mechanism against itself. So basically he tries to use the adaptive mechanism to keep the system in a constant state of churn. Um, as described by the diagram on the bottom, we have an attacker, we have probe cycles in which we measure the metrics of the system. And during each probe cycle, the attacker sends just a small amount of data for a short burst of time and is able to influence the perception of certain links in the system and cause a constant state of churn, which leads to topology change, instability, and just an inefficient network in general. So now that I've kind of described what each type of attacks, we're going to show the severity of these attacks on an example system. And we chose the ESM and system multicast for the fact that it was easy to be deployed. And we deployed it on Planet Lab, which is a distributed test bed. We um, used 100 nodes for each experiment over a 60-minute long experiment. And we had a single malicious node who lied about his bandwidth and said he had perfect bandwidth, lied about his latency, said he had zero latency, and that he had zero saturation or zero children. So he could always accept more children and always accept more nodes beneath him. As can be seen from the table, the lying node is actually able to attract other nodes connect to it as a parent 35 more times often than if he wasn't lying. He also increased the total number of parent changes in the entire network by 24%. This shows two things in the fact that lying is an effective way to get other nodes to connect to you, as well as it does also make the overlay itself more unstable, even if these nodes aren't connecting to you because of the constant change caused by the lying node. So what happens if this one malicious node can get a high place in the tree? Well, we let the node lie and get a, gain a privileged position in the tree that was close to the source. It lied about its bandwidth, latency, and saturation. And then after 15 minutes, it began to drop packets that were coming through it. As can be seen from the graph, once the attack started, the bandwidth of the entire system was severely degraded and could not recover even though ESM employs many sophisticated heuristics to make better decisions. It couldn't see that it was being attacked and thus it couldn't respond to this attack and it had poor performance throughout the rest of the experiment. So you might ask what happens when we have multiple malicious nodes and here 
we have the same type of experimental setup on Planet Lab. We have 100 nodes over a 60 minute experiment and we have different percentages of nodes being malicious. And these nodes are chosen at random, so they might actually be either leaf nodes or high in the source or high in the tree, we don't really know. But even just random nodes have a severe effect on the overall performance of the overlay. And as you gain more and more nodes or more and more malicious nodes, you have a greater effect on the overlay. And it can be seen when the 50% of the nodes are malicious, you have very little bandwidth actually being sent through the network. So the, another type of attack we demonstrated was a disruption attack on ESM. We actually demonstrated this on the Detour testbed for the fact that Detour is an emulation testbed and it's much safer to do these type of attacks because we were injecting traffic and didn't want to actually mess up any valid Planet Lab experiments. And here, the attacker actually exerts, exerts an artificial influence traffic on the system and causes um, the poly to keep changing. It sends traffic every five se every 30 seconds for just five seconds, a minimal amount of traffic, and can cause the topology to keep changing. You can see from the graph where there's dips and spikes, each of those is a topology change in which the entire topology changed and no actual unofficial data was being sent. So now that we've seen that there are attacks against the adaptive mechanisms in these overlay networks, as well as they have a severe effect on the performance of the network, we want to propose a solution to these and to mitigating the effects of these attacks. So our solution framework begins with the fact that we know that we have primary and secondary sources of information. And based on these sources of information, we want to make decisions to change. But we want to be able to prevent bad adaptations. We want to be able to detect when the adaptation we are most likely to make would be a bad or un unneeded change, unnecessary change to be able to avoid these. And we can do this with a pretty good um, probability. And then we make a decision to adapt. And while we cannot always make the best decision, we want to be able to take, detect when we do make a bad decision be able to react to this. So if we see that we did make a change to a malicious node or change to a, a poor performing node, we want to be able to detect this and be able to change to a better node so after we change to a better node, we want to be able to respond to the nodes that were possibly malicious. We want to be able to either push them to the fringes or actually push them off the network in order to guarantee that we um, continue receiving high performance and high throughput in our overlay network. Finally, we want to take all of these decisions together and feed them back into the decision process. So we want to take some notion of stability and actually feed it into the decision process. We want to take a how stable is my network, how stable is the possible parent I want to change to, and feed this decision and feed this data into the actual decision process. So the first part of our framework deals with prevention and wants to reduce the likelihood of making a poor or unnecessary adaptation. And we do this by making a local decision based on the metrics I have seen as well as the metrics I receive from my neighbors, from my probe set. So I ask my neighbors around me how they are doing and I can kind of tell where I'm at in my network and if I can do better. In order to reduce the chances of making a necessary adaptation, I do anomaly detection by um, multi-metric correlation and statistical outlier detection. And I'll go into more details in some future slides. The next part of the framework is detecting when we do actually make a bad decision. While we can avoid many, we cannot avoid all of them. So we want to be able to detect when we have made a bad decision, which is based on the fact that we can see when attacks like data dropping or other types of attack like that are occurring, we want to be able to quickly react to these and switch to a better parent or other nodes. In order to do this, we use a 
low bandwidth uh, feedback channel to the source and back from the source to each node in order to determine when malicious activities are occurring. So the third component of our framework is a response mechanism in which we want to neutralize malicious nodes. Here we want to be able to limit the extent of damage they can exert on the system. If we leave the malicious node in the system, it can still drop the traffic even though we know it's malicious, which is not a good idea. So in order to do this, we use a local suspects list and a global blacklist to generate a view of trust and reputation in the system in order to determine who is malicious and who is trustworthy. So the final component of the framework is we want to actually improve the stability once we have a stable system and maintain it by not making unnecessary adaptations. We want to do this by actually feeding some of the stability metrics into the adaptation process. So we're going to take things like the time connected to the parent or the frequency of changes, which gives us some notion of how stable a system is and how stable the potential node we are changing to is, and feed this into the adaptation process. So now we've seen the solution framework, I wanted to go more into depth into reducing unnecessary adaptations. So first of all, I want to show what we cannot do. We cannot always tell what correct versus incorrect is. We don't always have enough information to determine if an action I see is malicious. Perhaps the nose could be colluding, or maybe I just don't have the history of what I've seen in the past, so I can't tell if this is good or bad. And also, we can't always be able to tell if something is bad if we don't have more than one source of information. If my only source of information is myself, then I can't compare that versus other metrics and see if that decision is right or wrong. And finally, I cannot completely trust every node in the system. Some of the other nodes might lie, and the only node I can trust is the source, the fact that we have a multicast system, and if I don't trust the data being sent by the source, then I shouldn't even be worrying about an application because there is no data then. So what can we do? We basically can make it more difficult for an attacker to attack the system. We exploit the nature of the protocol and so that we make each node lie consistently, then we look for cases where these nodes aren't consistent with what's been reported before or what other nodes are reporting. And this way we can reduce the total number of bad changes without significant overhead on the system. So in other words, to avoid detection, we want to make a node lie consistently with what other peers around are reporting. So if other peers are reporting that they have um, high latency and this node reports real low latency, then something is probably wrong. Uh, we want to be able to uh, constrain an attacker to report and lie consistently about its correlated metrics so that way if it reports round trip time and latency these are correlated and thus the metrics, it the numbers it reports should be correlated and finally we want to make an attacker have to lie consistently with what it said in the past. In order to detect if an attacker is lying or not, we use outlier detection. So basically an outlier is a data point which is significantly different than the rest of the data points and data set as determined by some distance measure. For our distance measure, we use the Melanobis distance, which I'll go over in the next slide. So our outlier detection is performed locally by each node and is done using spatial and temporal outliers. A spatial outlier basically looks at what is being reported around me and says that my uh, data should be close to these. This constrains the attacker to lie consistently with those around it as well as consistently within the metrics it reports. The second type of outlier we use is temporal outlier detection which examines the consistency of the metrics reported over time. So this again makes the attacker lie consistently with what it's reporting as well as consistently with what it's reported in the past. So for our distance measure we could have used 
uh, Euclidean distance or several others, but we found that the Melanobis distance function was the best distance function for several reasons. First of all, it is good at detecting outliers with multiple attributes. Since ESM uses multiple metrics in order to optimize performance, this fits our application very nicely. Also, it takes into account both the variance and covariance of the attributes. This means that if we have a, uh, an attribute with high variance, it receives less weight in the decision process than those with low variance. Once again, a very nice trait to have. And lastly, it takes into consideration that there's correlation between attributes. And in an environment where we have attributes that are dependent, such as round-trip time and latency, we can leverage this to help make a better decision and make a more knowledgeable decision. So we perform our spatial outlier detection using the tuple of bandwidth, latency, and round-trip time. And it's performed during each probe period. What a probe period is, is every um, x seconds, a node will chat, ask its um, 30 nearest neighbors about what their performances are and what their bandwidth, latency, and round-trip time to the source is. It will then collect these metrics and compute a centroid for the data set. It will then compare all the metrics that it collected from its peer nodes to the centroid in order to determine who is significantly far away and who is an outlier. So here is a graphical representation of kind of what this is. And it's the red dot here represents what an outlier is, and each of the black dots is a data point in the data set. The ellipse represents the spatial outlier threshold, so anything outside of the ellipse is considered to be an outlier. Um, the dashed lines represent the utility function threshold, so anything that's not greater than the desired um, threshold isn't considered to be a valid node for parent change. And last, the shaded region contains the possible parents. So in other words, in order to be considered to be chosen as a parent, I need to be in the shaded region, I need to be within the ellipse, and I need to be closest to the centroid. What this guarantees is that guarantees we choose a node that's not an outlier, but is a good node. We might not choose the best because we're choosing one that's close to the centroid, but we avoid choosing ones that are outliers and could possibly be malicious. So we also use temporal detection, and what this is is each node maintains a mean, a standard deviation, a sample count for all of its peers. And during each probe cycle, it gets a new value from its peers, and the new value is then compared to the temporal centroid using the Melanobis distance and it can either be an uh, outlier or not and then the actual centroid is updated using these values and it's updated incrementally so we do not have to store a large data set we just store the mean standard deviation and the sample count so to put this all together and in order to have a nice cohesive unit we first begin by checking the historical centroid if many nodes are far away, then probably some network failure or some transient network condition is occurring and we abort the actual probe cycle and adaptation process. If there aren't many that are far away and it's okay, then we continue with the decision process. We then rank all the peers by their spatial outlier distance from the centroid. And the node that is closest to the centroid passes the utility function and is not a temporal, out or is not a temporal outlier is then chosen as the next parent. If none of the nodes fit this criteria, then there's no adaptation for this probe cycle and adaptation is, wait, is held out for the next one. So now we've seen how we can, we can actually identify who are good nodes and who might be potentially malicious. We're going to have a way to actually be able to respond to the malicious nodes. We wanted to isolate the malicious nodes for the fact that one will improve the performance of the overlay. If it can remove malicious nodes from 
privileged positions in the overlay will receive better bandwidth and better performance throughout the entire system. And we will also prevent our outlet detection from learning what malicious behavior is. If a malicious node is in the overlay too long, it will, it will learn what malicious behavior is and not be able to detect it anymore. In order to isolate the malicious nodes, we use a two-pronged approach. First, we use a local suspect list for quick response in which we tag possibly malicious nodes as being malicious and avoid these as parents. And then if they are malicious for too long, we use a global blacklist for slower and more permanent response. So the local response begins at each probe cycle. And during this probe cycle, uh, once the node has received uh, the probes from its peers, uh, it computes a suspicion value for each of its peers based on how far it is away from the uh, spatial and temporal centroids. So if it is an outlier, it creates a suspicion value based on the number of standard deviations away it is from each of the centroids, and then it gossips this value to all of its neighbors around it. This gives it a view of whether or not it's only suspected at one node or is it suspected at many nodes in the local area. And so once a node is placed on a suspect list, it is uh, nodes are biased against choosing as a parent for the fact that we want to choose nodes that have the best potential of being a good parent and have the least potential of being malicious. And if a node receives a high enough suspicion value, it is actually reported to source as being possibly malicious. During each probe cycle, if a node is seen as being an outlier, its suspicion value is incremented and kept at a high value and is it's continually incremented until it is either reported to the source or it is seen as not being an outlier anymore and it is solely decremented during each probe cycle to where it is removed from the actual suspect list. Once it is moved from the suspect list, it, is gone, it goes back to being a completely normal node and is chosen as a parent like normal. So after each node forms its local suspicion list, it then um, sends these lists to the source and the source aggregates these into a global view of trust. In order to do this, the source um, runs a centralized version of the eigentrust reputation system to define a transitive view of trust for all the nodes in the system. So it tells the source what other nodes in the system perceive this guy's utility as being and if he is a trustworthy node or not. We use um, a centralized algorithm at the source for the fact that we trust the source as well as it allows for quick convergence and minimal computation overhead. So in order to compute the value of trust, we place all the suspicion values in matrix, we normalize the matrix, and then take the left eigenvector of the matrix, which gives us a numerical value for each node. Once this numerical, fall, numerical value falls below a certain threshold, the node is then considered to be malicious and is added to a global blacklist. This blacklist is then disseminated to all nodes through the um, tree-based multicast as well as the gossip-based protocol to, for both quickness as well as to make sure that it can't be dropped by malicious nodes on the actual tree path. Once a node is added to the black list, it is actually not selected as a parent, it is disconnected from a, as being a child, and its gossip messages are not listened to. So in essence, it is removed from the network even if it still tries to be part of it. The nodes in the network basically ignore this node. So now that we have seen um, some of the attacks in the solution space, we're going to look at some of the results from actually implementing the solution. So once again, we have um, experimental results from Planet Lab, run, Planet Lab runs of 100 nodes, in which we have one malicious node that lies about its bandwidth, its latency, and its round trip time. And we can see that the table here has been augmented with 
uh, lines for both the spatial and the spatial temporal outliers. And can we see that these uh, improve the stability and reduce the number of malicious changes that are, occur in the actual network. And you can see that the spatial outliers significantly reduces and then using both of them combined greatly reduces the number of changes to both the malicious parent as well as the total parent changes. What this shows is besides um, not choosing the malicious parent as often also makes the overlay itself more stable. It should also be noted the fact that we don't completely um, stop the malicious node from being changed or from being chosen as a parent. We just greatly reduce the ability for it to be chosen as a parent. So somebody might ask, can the actual attacker bypass the outlet detection? Can the attacker move the centroid so that his data values actually look uh, normal? And so we've come to the conclusion that including attackers must actually expend more effort to be chosen as a parent than if they actually reported their metrics correctly. And so we have a graph here, and there are four cases. The first is when no node lies. Second is when we have a coalition of nodes lie about the optimum bandwidth and latency, which means that they say they have perfect bandwidth and zero latency. We have um, our attackers lie about bandwidth, latency, and round-trip time. And finally, we have the attackers lie and say that they have the mean of all the attackers' um, metrics. So this way, the attackers collude and they average their metrics together and report this value to try and move the centroid to be what they want it to be. And we actually see that from the graph here, which represents the rank of a possible parent change. And so in order to guarantee that a malicious node is actually chosen as the next parent, in the case when nodes lie about their bandwidth and latency, we need 80% of the nodes that are possible parents to be malicious in order to guarantee a malicious node is chosen as a parent. For the optimum bandwidth and latency and round trip time, we need approximately 60% of the nodes to be malicious to guarantee a malicious node is chosen as a parent. And in the most sophisticated coordinated uh, technique using the mean, we need approximately 47. And so you might ask how this compares with just no lying at all. And in fact, no lying, you need only 40% of the nodes to be malicious to guarantee that the next node chosen as a parent is a malicious node. So what this shows is the fact that lying is no longer an effective technique to be chosen as a parent. It no longer augments your ability to attack the network. And so the attacker here is constrained in what he can do to the network. So next we'll look at the effectiveness of the response mechanism. And so basically here we have the same experimental setup in a plant lab of 100 nodes. We look at the first 30 minutes of the attack when the actual attacks occur, and we have 30% malicious nodes. So for the first 15 minutes of the experiment, malicious nodes are allowed to lie about their latency, their bandwidth, and the round trip time, and obtain advantageous positions in the overlay network. After 15 minutes, the nodes begin to drop data. And you can see from, if there's no response, the actual bandwidth of the system greatly suffers and drops down to about 200 kbps. But when there is actually a global response, and one that, as it's more tailored to the application, the bandwidth returns to near optimal. Yes, I mean, so you see that the bandwidth itself actually dips down for tens of seconds, but then it actually recovers. And if you remember from a few previous slides, when there's only a single node, the ESM could not recover for over 15 minutes when it wasn't replying or wasn't using any type of um, global response. So here we are actually able to return to near optimal bandwidth even though there are malicious nodes. And it should also be noted that only malicious nodes were blacklisted using our technique. This doesn't mean that we removed all the nodes. It removes, means we removed the nodes that were high in the tree and pushed the rest to the fringes of the tree. 
So, in conclusion, we have uh, demonstrated the vulnerability of adaptation mechanisms in unstructured performance-driven overlay networks. We have discussed a uh, comprehensive solution for addressing these attacks. We also demonstrated that uh, spatial and temporal outlier detection are effective mechanisms in avoiding unnecessary adaptations. And we've also started to show that a reputation system is a uh, good way to respond to possibly malicious nodes. So, are there any questions? Are there any questions from the remote site? Um, one question. So, so, there's a lot of uh, theoretical results on, on solving different problems in distributed systems with a certain percentage of malicious users and what you can accomplish. So, how do those relate to your your system? I mean, in some sense, there's a, a cap on the number of malicious users you can have at a time and claim use. Your network still works, I guess. Well, of course, there's going to be a total number of uh, malicious nodes we can actually tolerate. And we've seen that, I mean, in our experiments, we have 100 nodes, and we actually have 30 to 50% of the nodes being malicious, and we can still recover to a near um, optimal bandwidth. I mean, we haven't actually try to find out what the theoretical limits are to what we can actually recover from. And we don't actually try to um, completely recover. We just try to maximize what we can get out of the network depending on how we're being attacked. So I guess it's slightly different. Does that answer your question? Uh, it gives me an idea, I guess. The other question I guess I have is, um, can you ever blacklist a, an honest player? It didn't seem like you could, but on we, the other hand, in principle, principle, there's nothing stopping it. In principle, there's nothing stop it, stopping it, but we take uh, multiple steps at each, at each of the local nodes as well as in the global context to try and avoid blacklisting global nodes. I mean, so first of all, we don't actually report a node as being potentially malicious unless I myself have seen this malicious behavior. So if I'm gossip too and I see that nodes around me are reporting them as malicious, I myself won't report them as malicious unless I actually see and can validate this using my own um, outlier detection. And at the source, we have to have a certain threshold of people actually reporting this person as malicious. And since it is a transitive um, system where this trust is transitive, you have um, the better chance of detecting when malicious nodes are actually lying about potentially beneficial nodes. And the reason we used eigentrust is the fact that it was designed in order to prevent coalitions of malicious nodes from lying about um, beneficial nodes and blacklisting them or giving them a bad reputation. So in essence, there is nothing stopping it, but we've taken measures to prevent that, as well as you can also play with the threshold of blacklisting or, or not to be more or less lenient depending on what you need for your system. If you need to make sure you never blacklist a malicious node, you might have to set your threshold a little lower. Or if you don't really worry about selecting a, a blacklisting a malicious node or, or a beneficial node or two, you might be able to set it a little higher. Okay, thanks. No problem. Are there any other questions? All right, I guess then that's it. Thank you, guys. Thank you.